0: My story, whatever that is now, whatever it will be in 20 years, for that to change lives, inspire people to overcome adversity, inspire people to know that they're not alone, and inspire people um, to just be patient and always you know, look up and know that God has a plan and a purpose for their life beyond what they feel in terms of vulnerability or anxiety or Depression or not feeling sufficient for the expectations of the other people around them or who's looking at them or their audience or all these things. You know, God's love is sufficient and that's all that they need.
1: Welcome to the Jesus Calling Podcast. This week's episode features two men who have experienced pain and trauma in their lives, yet still profess that they could see the beauty of God's hand as he led them through the darkness. TV reality show star Luke Pell, and author and speaker Jack Deere. As a contestant on ABC's The Bachelor reality show, Luke Pell found himself propelled into sudden fame and recognition. As he began to be watched by the world at large, often being publicly praised one day and harshly criticized the next, he found himself dealing with feelings of anxiousness and depression. Luke relied on the faith that had gotten him through a near-death experience following his service in the military to keep his heart focused on God during this time.
0: I grew up in a small town right outside of Austin, Texas, uh, called Burnett. And uh, my parents are still there, retired. We had a a family cattle ranch that I grew up on and went to a 3A high school and played in the Friday Night Lights football time frame. And um, my parents raised my sister and I in the church. And it was actually a Baptist church that we went to when I was a child and took piano lessons from the pastor of the church. And I learned how to play piano there. And music really started for me there in that place. It was just a really a solid foundation for me to start out on and for me to appreciate what it's like to uh, really grow up in a small town and with a positive upbringing with great parents that are salt of the earth people that knew the importance of faith and family and really laid that foundation for us. But then as you become an adult, you have to figure out what does your faith really mean to you? What is it just what your parents taught you? Is it just something that you were in a habit of doing, a place that you were in a habit of going to every Sunday as a kid growing up? Or is there a personal relationship? Is there more? Is there purpose behind what your faith is and how you define that? And so as I went in my college years— um, I think that that's really where I started figuring out what my personal journey was going to be. And you know, there was definitely some roller coaster moments for me. It was there was a lot of up and downs. I was in the military. I was um, I had a very clean break from my family life when I was 18 years old. I, I went to West Point on a football scholarship, and my family went with me the first day up to basic training and took me to New York, and we said our goodbyes, and then I would only see my parents and and the rest of my family once or twice a year after that while I was going to college at the military academy. You know, just with that college experience, like I was completely pulled out of that comfort zone that I had back down in Texas and moved up to New York and fell into a military culture that I had no clue what I was getting into, a very uh, stringent academic load in an Ivy League academic situation, and I had really not been prepared for that. And I was just trying to make my way through and have success in life. And so you're always, you you begin to feel like you need to keep up appearances and you begin to feel like you don't want to be vulnerable and you don't want to show weakness because that's something that the military culture pulls in is you never want to show weakness on the outside. You always want to be very put together, very systematic about how you make decisions. And And so those were the challenges emotionally and from a faith perspective that I started really dealing with um, during those four years of my life. And that was just the beginning. You know, I graduated from West Point in 2007, and I went into my five-year commitment in the military as an Army officer, and that was a new season, definitely, for me. That's when my faith began being challenged was at that point in my life. It's like, hey, I'm more of a nine to five, go to class at the officer training school and then come home and do, and you have the rest of the weekend to do whatever you want. So that's when, you know, really for me, the temptations of partying and just being a single 22-year-old guy became real. You know, my faith was still there, but I wasn't, wasn't actively growing from a faith perspective and emotionally and and any perspective in life, if you're not growing and getting stronger in the direction of your goals, you're gonna be digressing in the wrong direction and you're gonna be sliding backwards. And I think for me, that started the next season of really finding myself over the next three or four years mixed in with a lot of challenges in the military that were coming my way. And, And one of those was going to Afghanistan and learning to lead troops in combat at 23 years old and the reality of maybe I'm going to face death when I show up in Afghanistan or maybe I'm going to lose my legs or all these these other fears start creeping in and, and they're of a different nature at that point I was trying to be competitive and be a great leader in the military and have success from a worldly perspective for me that was starting to be more and more of a low point you know um, it was just I didn't have a direction I didn't have a goal I was just trying to by my time, while I was still in the military, I was just starting to wander a lot back and forth from that path. The military moved me to El Paso, Texas. It was my final and last duty station for the last two years I was in the military. I was frustrated about that because I was, felt like that happened to me. You know, I was like, well, I didn't have a choice. Now I'm frustrated with being in the military because they're moving me somewhere that I don't wanna be. This is not the life that I chose. and I was back to wanting to pull control of my own life and not really just giving it to God and saying, look, whatever door opens and that I'm supposed to walk through, I, I should be at peace with that. Rather than that, I was, I was angry of what did I do wrong? What could I have done differently to get where I wanted to be? And uh, luckily I had a roommate that moved in with me out there, uh, a really good friend now, a guy that I played football with. His name's Ryan Brents. And, and Ryan had just recently become a Christian and, I think maybe a year or two before that. And so he was completely in a different spot in his faith walk. And he was looking and digging and searching and always trying to grow in his faith walk because it was so new to him. And me, I'd kind of gotten stagnant. And uh, I was angry and just bitter and all these things. And it was so refreshing to have Ryan come in. And I think it was meant to be that way, that he would be my roommate. And then that through the conversations that we started having, that his newfound faith— would then kind of be the one that renews mine and, and brought me back to a spot of being like, my purpose is not for me to have control. And there's so much more out there of a plan and a destiny than what what I can come up with. I think one of th- the biggest victories in my faith walk in that I came back into a spot where I was completely surrendering my plans and my expectations back to God and what purpose that I was put on this earth for instead of what I could get out of this world and and what people thought of me. I was starting to make plans for getting out of the military and and moving back to the civilian world and getting a job there and uh, I had this rare infection, I was like one in a million infection that got into my heart after we didn't know if it was from my wisdom teeth being taken out or something like that it was just a very rare out of nowhere coincidence and I went in I was 26 years old and I went into heart failure and was admitted to the uh, VA hospital in El Paso Texas and it was to the point of being in ICU and you know my family flew in that night um, and all my extended family and friends my roommate was out of town at the time and my actually my my ex-girlfriend at the time flew from Tennessee out there because the the consensus was is I was probably not gonna make it I was probably gonna not make it through the night and I was gonna pass away at that time and so I go from you know being healthy being a former college football player that works out every day and felt like I was in top shape to having a life or death situation that had nothing to do with combat that I had been through. It had nothing to do with anything expected or normal. It was just completely blindsiding me. That was a moment, and probably one of the most defining moments of my entire adulthood, was that my faith just went to a completely different level at that point. Because I, I basically, emotionally and mentally, I had to accept... Death. I had to accept dying at that time and I thought my faith was strong then and I wasn't ready to die. I was like, I was desperately fighting it in my head. And so all these people that come in that love me, you know, basically are just there not knowing how the next day is going to go, if I'm going to make it, if I'm not going to make it. And uh, it was through that experience that I realized even more, and I guess I'm hard-headed, I, I guess God kind of has to probably, you know, beat me over the forehead with things sometimes for it to make sense and really sink in with me but that definitely did it uh, is, is that my purpose in this world is completely His and it's up to what God has for me and I can collect a bunch of money I can collect a bunch of fame I can collect a bunch of followers all these things in this world I can shoot for all those worldly goals but the day you die none of that stuff matters it doesn't matter at all and the only thing that does matter is the legacy that you left, the, the inspiration that you left in the world, the people that you inspired, your, your faith that you were able to show to the rest of the world around you, and the lives that you were able to change. That's the only thing that you can leave here. That's the only thing that matters if you die tonight. I continue to experience a lot of challenges after that, that now are helping me empathize and helping me support people that have anxiety and depression. Anxiety and depression, to me, I was in the military, and very alpha male society, and I, I didn't have much sympathy for somebody who had anxiety and depression. I felt like, hey, you know, look, there's a lot going on in the world. Like, you should have control of your stress. You should be mentally tough. And those were things that I had pulled from the military training. Anxiety. It was basically PTSD, not from a war, but PTSD from that traumatic experience of almost having a heart failure issue that didn't recover. And so then anxiety and health anxiety became a reality for me over the course of the next year or two while I was you know, healing and, and went into you know, physical therapy and all those things. Um, I had to deal with what that real physical manifestation of anxiety was. I was struggling with this emotionally and physically, something that I never saw coming and something that I wished wasn't a part of my life. But I finally and I'm continuing to do this now is accepting this, it's part of my purpose, right? And for me to be able to share that with other people, for me to be able to share my vulnerabilities and, and the things that make me physically feel weak in this worldly body that I'm in. I think that there is something to be said for that and there's a reason for that and I'm, I'm learning to embrace that now. There is something to be said for what Jesus Calling does in the same way that if I'm sharing my vulnerabilities of like my anxiety, if I share that on say social media for instance, um, I'll share a Jesus Calling passage on social media, I'll share that I dealt with anxiety or that, that was an issue of mine on social media and those are these very... Uh, internal battles that people sometimes are fighting about, or, or or maybe it'll address an internal battle. And I get more response from people with those things than I do with anything else that I put out, because that's what matters. There's people that, they're somewhere out in middle America that are struggling deeply with something that they've got nobody to talk to about. They don't know where to turn, and they're looking for an inspiration, they're looking for someone that they can relate to that oh wow I'm not alone in this, somebody else is dealing with this and they're looking for faith to latch on to to get them through to another day in their own life and in their own battle that nobody else knows that they're fighting. I, I so much appreciate what Jesus Calling brings to the table and what it's been for me as a daily devotional I know a lot of people that I talk to is that you know It can give you something that is very relatable to the problems that we're facing today, right? And what it is in the world that we live in now. And then it completely defines the scripture that's in there and how people can use that and apply that to their life. And to have some roadmap of keeping your faith walk on track, that's what Jesus Calling has been for me. And uh, it's been so cool to... Just always have that, and it's been the one thing that I've always come back to when I'm when I'm when I'm looking for inspiration. It's been seven years since I dealt with that life-changing moment, and um, in that seven years, I got out of the military. After I got out of the military, and almost kind of gave up on being in Nashville and feeling like that was something that was put in me from a young age of just being around music and the the beauty of telling a story through a song and connecting people through music. And so that was in me. And I, and I wanted to be back here and do that. And I felt like it was where I was supposed to be. And so I finally was able to make that move back to Nashville and his plan for my life is always in times when I am out of a comfort zone. And when I feel like things are completely going wrong, you know, back at West Point thinking I'm going to fail out my first semester and then God shows up and says, you know, it comes alongside you and says, you know, through somebody that gives you inspiration or however that message comes, you're going to be okay. You're going to make it through, you know. And fast-forwarding through the military experience, the near-death experience with my heart condition, uh, and then moving to Nashville and feeling like, wow, I don't have a plan. I don't have a real job. I'm kind of doing this entrepreneurial thing and trying to rent some houses and trying to, you know, put all these different things together. And you feel very uncertain. And that's when the search becomes, God, what am I doing here? I don't. I feel alone out here. I feel like maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to be doing. And almost always, those moments are the ones that I know that he had a plan for me. That's where that faith matters so much. You know, the woman that touched Jesus' cloak in the crowd, right, she had faith that if she just touched him, that that's what would change her, would heal her, right? and faith becomes the focal point for what that defining moment is. And so I've really learned to appreciate those moments of uncertainty. And when you feel like you're feeling more alone and you're feeling like you don't know what tomorrow holds, and you're feeling like maybe I made the wrong decision, maybe I should change what I'm doing, those are the times when I get the most direct purpose from God in my life. I know that Coming here four years ago to do this full time is the door that God did open for me and that I was supposed to be there. And I think the most important part is it's helped me unpack my story and what that is and and helped me learn how to tell my story and tell it in a way that is through music and tell it hopefully in a way that people can really connect with it and relate to it. And and there's more to come. And I just continue to grow, and I'm, I'm a work in progress, and I've learned through being on a dating reality tv show that the world is a very big judgmental narcissistic place to be in and especially on a scale of being on a reality tv show that is all about the negative and the dramatic side of your private life sometimes and for me i've been there and i've personally experienced that like the highs and the lows of being a reality TV personality that was all praise and people feel like you're this character that can do no wrong and they forget that you're also a person, right? And they they really delve into your private life and they realize that you're just a human just like everybody else and you're going to have shortcomings. You don't know what the rest of the world's going to think about you. They may love you tomorrow. They may hate you the next day. That's been, I think, the biggest thing that I've been learning recently and learning through being exposed to a large audience in the world and being on reality TV and being in an entertainment business in and of itself is we have to really stay true to ourselves and true to our faith and, and keep that faith walk intact regardless of what the rest of the world is throwing at you every day because uh... the more we're thinking about the rest of the world and what they're thinking about us the less we're thinking about what God has for us and where our faith walk should be and so I've seen that challenge firsthand for myself and that's something that I continue to work on and and continue to look for answers in and how to deal with that day to day. It's sad that it took a near-death experience, but you know, that will be the most defining moment. I'll probably never have another moment more defining than that in my life. Because it again, it changed the trajectory of where I was headed, and it and it showed me again that God's saying, Hey, one of my, you know, favorite verses is Jeremiah twenty-nine, eleven. That know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for a hope and a future, and plans to prosper. Right, and that verse was defining for me, and realizing that look, He has a plan, and His plan is the only one that matters.
1: You can catch up with Luke Pell's life after The Bachelor and hear his music by visiting lukepell.com. Don't miss the second half of our program with writer and speaker Jack Deere after this brief message about a free offer from Jesus Calling. Motherhood. It's a journey like no other, teeming with love, unparalleled dedication, and moments that pierce the very essence of your soul. It's a trek that demands to be celebrated, lauded, and embraced in its entirety. Celebrate the moms in your life this Mother's Day with two beautiful gift books— Jesus Calling for Moms by Sarah Young and Grace for the Moment for Moms by Max Licato. These heartfelt devotionals will remind the moms in your life just how special they are. Jesus Calling for Moms and Grace for the Moment for Moms are available now, where all books are sold.
2: During times of transition and unknown next steps, it's more important than ever to cling to the promises of God and to tune your ear to what Jesus has to say. Jesus Calling for Graduates is an encouraging compilation of 150 devotions from Sarah Young's brand. Grads will find topics such as discerning God's will, self-worth, trust, support, and much more. Jesus Calling for Graduates is perfect for both high school and college graduates as they embark on the next chapter. Look for our special custom edition of Jesus Calling for Graduates, available exclusively at faithgateway.com.
1: Are you looking for a way to keep track of your daily prayers along with Jesus Calling? The Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar goes right along with your daily readings from Jesus Calling. Each day begins with a guided reflection, followed by a space for you to fill in your prayers of Thanksgiving and special requests. You can get your free Jesus Calling Family Prayer Calendar by visiting jesuscalling.com offer. Jack Deere, formerly an associate professor of Old Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary, is a writer and lecturer who speaks about the joys of establishing a friendship with God, a truth that was learned over years of time grappling with difficult events in his personal life. Jack opens up about his early family life and the tragedies that happened to him as a boy, which he shares for the first time in his book, Even in Our Darkness. Though he emerged from his abusive childhood and went on to be a seminary professor, pastor, and best-selling writer, tragedy would present itself again and would cause him to question everything he ever believed and leave him wondering how he could ever trust in God again.
2: My name is Jack Deere, and I'm a writer. I've been a church planter, a seminary professor, um, and right now I live in St. Louis and, and write and help out in the ministry of a church here called Grace. I grew up in in Fort Worth, Texas, and uh, we were kind of a lower middle class family. My my dad worked for General Motors. He was a, a maintenance supervisor, and uh, every day he left from work, he, he kissed mom. And when he came home, he kissed her again. And my dad was my hero. He was the smartest guy in the world. He knew the answer to every question I asked him. Uh, I just I idolized him. Mom dropped out of high school in the 11th grade to marry dad. She was 16. He was 21. And I never saw mom read a book. In in the place of knowledge, she gave me uh, tenderness. And it looked like I was going to have the ideal family. And then my two younger brothers joined us, uh, Gary and Tommy. And by the time I was six, I became aware of a war that was going on between dad and mom. He got a promotion at General Motors, which put him on a night shift. So we didn't see that much of him anymore. And on the weekends, he would take air conditioning and plumbing jobs my dad could fix anything and to summarize it he became an absentee husband and father and she became an enraged unloved woman his absence just fueled mom's rage and so she started taking it out on us and and beatings and and some of those beatings were really severe just screaming and raging and she was not a bad woman i mean she was not a a sadist Uh, She was an unloved woman and she tried to be good, but she could not get over the struggle with my uh, father and the thing that sort of shaped or kind of climaxed the childhood for me was when I was 12 years old, uh, I had two younger brothers, a baby sister, my dad committed suicide in our home with a rifle, his childhood rifle, and left a 34-year-old woman with an 11th grade and 10th grade education to care for four kids and we all just went wild. Um, mom went wild. I mean, there, there was just, there were a parade of men in our house and they all have one thing in common. They didn't stay. So that's kind of, that was my uh, childhood. And um, as I grew up and became an adult, if you'd asked me about my childhood, I would have just said it was boring. All that trauma, I just kind of put behind me. In fact, I blocked out a lot of it and, and started remembering things when I started writing this memoir. And so that this childhood produced this kind of desire to keep really tight control in my life. And then I blocked out some of the stuff and kind of thought feelings are bad, stay in your mind, don't go to your feelings. And that was kind of the hardening effect that my childhood had on me. I stole all my clothes. There was no money for clothes and I wanted to wear nice clothes. Uh, We were vandals, we we carried guns in our car. My younger brother, uh, Gary, the middle brother became a drug dealer. I didn't distinguish myself academically in high school, so I tried to distinguish myself by being the wildest kid in the group. The turning point for me was, um, I, I was in a group of eight uh, athletes. I was never a very good athlete, so we all hung out together. All of our parents were either divorced or getting divorced, alcoholic or becoming alcoholic, so, so we were eight kids basically out of control. And my best friend in that group became a Christian, and we exiled him from the group. This was the beginning of our sophomore year in high school. We we kicked him totally out of the group. Uh, He prayed for me for 18 months, even though he didn't see me very much. He he prayed for me and on December 18th, 1965, I spent the night at his house to go meet some new girls from another high school. And at two o'clock in the morning, I asked him how you get to heaven. And for the first time, I heard Jesus died for me. He said, Jesus died for you on the cross. And if you will trust him to forgive you and give you a new life, he will come into your heart and he will never leave again. I had never heard that before. I had never heard Jesus died for me. And so he said, if you'll trust him to forgive you and give you a new life, he'll come into your heart and never leave. And I said, that can't be true. I said, what if I do something really bad? And he said, Jackie, you're gonna do bad things the rest of your life. He doesn't come into your life because you're good or bad. He comes into your life because you trust Him to forgive you and give you a new life, and He will never leave. And I said, Bruce, that can't be true. See, when you're 17 years old and everybody you've ever loved has left you, to hear that God won't leave you, it's just its too good to be true. And then he quoted John 10:28. This was the first verse of Scripture I ever heard. I give my sheep eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And I was instantly born again on the hearing of that verse. I could not have told you I was born again. I had no Christian vocabulary, repentance, that kind of stuff. But inside, in my heart, I just said, God, I'm coming over to your side. And that was on December 18th, 1965, at 2 a.m. in the morning. And everything changed for me after that. I didn't plan on going to college because we had no money. And I I couldn't distinguish myself academically, so I didn't really know what I was going to do. Three months after I became a Christian, God sent a young life leader into my life. His name was Scott Manley. And and he was everything I wanted to be. He was athletic. He was handsome. He was funny. He was super intelligent. And he took me to his young life club at, at a different high school. And I watched him speak and hold the hearts of 125 kids right in his palm. What I really wanted was his confidence. I mean, he, he stood before that group. The students laughed. They cried. And it looked like he was having the greatest time in his life. And And so what happened is Scott became my discipler. When I talk about a discipler, the only person who never needed any help chose 12 helpers. Why? For the pleasure it gave him to love those 12 apostles and to teach them to love what he loved. And that's what Scott did for me. He did not need my help. But he loved me, and he taught me to love what he loved. He taught me how to memorize scripture, which became a lifelong habit. He put the first C.S. Lewis book in my hand when I was only 17 years old. I read everything C.S. Lewis wrote. I I became a a C.S. Lewis addict. It turned out that God had given me this ability to think abstractly. I didn't know that because I'd never read philosophy or anything like that. Ended up going to college on a grant, majored in philosophy, ran across a Dallas Seminary graduate, never saw anybody that knew the Bible like that, so then I went to Dallas Seminary, not to become a professor, not to become a pastor. I just wanted to be a young life leader who knew the Bible. Just finished my second year in seminary. I'm going to work for the summer at a lake development where we're hiring 25 college young life kids to be there to do all the work. So I'm the the summer pastor and the head of the work group. Lisa comes down from uh, Phoenix. She's been in Young Life Phoenix giving talks in her Young Life Club, so it's May 18th, 1973. I see this yellow Pontiac Coupe pull up to the lake development. And then I watch her get out of the back seat of this car. So I walk up to her and I'm trying to act nonchalant. And I ask and I ask her just a pedestrian question, you know, how was your flight? And, uh, and then she tells me. And when I hear her speak, um, it, it's like an, an angel's voice. So I'm looking at her. And it took her about 60 seconds to refute that doctrine of you can't fall in love at first sight, (laughs) because I did. And then just every moment I was with her after that just confirmed that she was the one. After about uh, three or four weeks, I was sure that she was the one. We spent the whole summer together. And by the end of the summer, we knew we wanted to get married. So she moved to Fort Worth, and uh, I finished my third year. She worked uh, as a dental assistant for a year. And then we got married uh, on June 1st. A year later, 1974. Then I get to seminary and become the teacher of all the Young Life College kids. And then I start a church. And it's like the aristocracy of the city start coming to this church. Our best friends are John and Nancy Snyder, Snyder Oil Company, which is a publicly traded company. I'm hanging out with uh, CEOs and lawyers that are 10 years older than me. And often we would spend the evening with uh, people asking me questions. And I grew up uh, poor, not understanding anything about this class of people, this kind of homes or country clubs. And now we were going to exclusive restaurants and, and, and country clubs. And in one sense, I'm kind of a little bit of the center of attention because some of these folks are just brand new Christians. They're super hungry. And And Lisa is sort of everybody thinks she's the most beautiful person in the room, but she doesn't say anything. The early years, uh, there, there was a, a sadness in Lisa that I didn't understand, and so she spends those these evenings, which I think are great, she comes home depressed, and, and she tried to tell me about her sadness, and, and she said, uh, you know, how, how would you feel if you spent the whole evening and you didn't say a word? I wasn't sensitive to it, and it would be 30 years before I found out the real source, which I tell later toward the end of the book. It took her 32 years to tell me why she would walk into a room and feel disqualified. And it had to do with the sexual abuse that came from her father when she was five years old, from the time she was five till the time she was 12, she was sexually assaulted by her father, the Christian high school football coach. Although I had plenty of my own shame, I didn't even think in those categories. I I just thought, you have an unpleasant feeling, just get rid of it. I lived out of my mind, not out of my feelings. But her salvation came when we had our first child, Stephen Craig Deer. And she threw herself into motherhood, and that became the chief joy of her life. At 27, I become a professor of Old Testament exegesis and Semitic languages at Dallas Seminary. I become a professor. I become a church planner that plants a, a really great church. Um, from the time I was 17 till the time I was 52... Pretty much everything I touched turned to gold. So it's like everything has worked out in my life until I'm 52. We're living on a Montana mountain um, in Whitefish, Montana. I can hunt literally all over the world. That was my passion, hunting, and I have great friends. And the only negative thing in our life is we've got three children. Stephen, our firstborn, brilliant, great writer. Elise, our uh, baby, perfect child, just like her mom, beautiful straight-A student, um, and then Scott, our second-born son, in the middle. Um, And Scott was a handful from the day he was born. He was the life of every party he'd ever been to. And he got involved in drugs in our church parking lot at about the time he was 12 or 13. When he was 18, he was in rehab for seven months. He would get clean, and we would grab hold of the hope that it would last. Um, And then on December 27th, Uh, 2000 the day after Christmas Scott mixed five things none of which are lethal but when you put them all together they become a lethal cocktail and they carried him into this realm of psychotic invulnerability and about 5 o'clock in the morning he shot himself in our home in Montana with my 44 Magnum the gun that we left downstairs in the kitchen to scare away a bear and I just went, we went into a cave. Um, I mean, I lost my story for a living. I started questioning everything. It was just, uh, yeah, why go to church? I mean, I, I go to church because I have something to say, but I don't have anything to say anymore. I'm not sure I know God. I'm not sure I know this. this is a side of him. I don't know. So I can't, I can't do anything. I can't even make a decision about his funeral. If it hadn't been for our good friends, I don't know what would have happened to us. For months, we didn't have to do a single thing. We were so protected and cared for by them. So I started keeping a journal during this time of what I was stealing, of what I was going through, of what was happening, and what was happening to Lisa. I clung to one verse of scripture, Psalm one nineteen sixty eight. You are good, and what you do is good. And so I would cling to that, and I would say, even though I can't see how this is good, I choose to believe that what you do is good. But I, I can't write anymore. I can't write a single sentence. I can't grow a church anymore. Uh, and Lisa chooses to go down opioids and alcohol, go that route with her pain, and I can't get her sober. So in this recovery period after we lost Scott, is it's like he took everything away that made me feel important. He took away writing. He took away my ability to grow a church. Um, He took away money, and he wouldn't let me get Lisa sober. He took away everything until there was nothing left but him and his affection. And that's when my life began to change, and I began to see that the most important thing in life is feeling the affection of God, of actually being friends with him. We love him because he first loved us. And so the bulk of my prayer life became, let me see your beauty. Let me be in your circle of friendship and, and so on. And then things began to change. And that's when I started writing again. I, I'd write sentences and I, and I wrote the uh, first chapter of this book. Basically, what one of my prayers has been, Lord, let this book reach people who don't go to church, who don't necessarily believe in God. Let them see your beauty in this story and read the story for the sake of the beauty in it. So my prayer for the book is that it will uh, bring people to the Lord, people back to the Lord, and deepen the friendship that people have with the Lord, which is what Jesus Calling has done. And I, I pray that my book will do that as well.
1: You can find Jack Deere's book, Even in Our Darkness, A Story of Beauty and a Broken Life, wherever books are sold. Next time, on the Jesus Calling Podcast, we speak with Nona Jones, the head of faith-based partnerships at Facebook. A successful young woman who speaks in front of thousands, Nona is a mother and a pastor's wife. She recalls a darker time when she was a child who was struggling in an abusive environment and the day a friend invited her to church where she found unconditional love for the first time. Throughout elementary school, I had always been the kid that was acting out. I was labeled a problem child. And the reason really was I was acting out because there was so much chaos at home. And like I was really responding and reacting to trauma that nobody ever asked me, why was I acting that way? They just assumed I was a bad kid. But she invited me to go to church. And um, I'll never forget the first time I walked in that church. Like there were people who didn't even know me, but they just hugged me and they loved me. Um, They welcomed me. They really made me feel like I belonged. And that was the first time I ever felt like I really mattered. Like I was really valued. Do you love hearing these stories of faith weekly from people like you whose lives have been changed by a closer walk with God? Then be sure to subscribe to the Jesus Calling Stories of Faith podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a review so that we can reach others with these inspirational stories. And you can also see these interviews on video as part of our original web series, with a new interview premiering every other Sunday on Facebook Live. Find previously broadcast interviews on our YouTube channel on IGTV or on JesusCalling.com/slash video.